right. Good, good, good. Hope everybody's doing all right. Y'all doing okay here with us? Yes. All right. Good. Glad you're here. Smiling. Happy about it. Good. Me too. Hope you guys in digital land are doing well um, as well. I mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. Um, and I know it's true uh, for you, but please remain uh, both vigilant and diligent um, in dealing with the spread of this virus and also with prayer for friends and family members um, who are suffering from the illness itself and even in some cases from the grief of losing a friend or family member. Um, I'll just say for me, and I suspect it's true beyond me, but, you know, I'm really tired of the quarantine stuff and all the measures and all that. It's really, really, really fatiguing and getting old, and yet at the same time, it's important for us to remember um, that uh, this virus uh, continues its spread and wreaking havoc in people's lives, and so uh, please remain uh, diligent in that regard. Okay. Uh, good, so we are continuing our, our study series that we've been on for the last, well, this is part five, so I guess five weeks, uh, entitled Jesus Is, and we'll press pause on this series after, after today, and we'll turn toward an Advent theme. But for this morning, this is Jesus Is, part five. This morning's title is Jesus Is Invitation. Now, that's a single word that says a lot, and yet it doesn't say everything, obviously. Um, and it, the first question it begs is, well, Jesus is an invitation to what exactly? And that's what I'm going to try uh, to spend the next few minutes um, answering. So, uh, so this morning, Jesus is invitation. I was reflecting on this a little bit, and I'll just say from my personal narrative, um, it's hard for me to, to really even uh, believe this, but um, I've been in ministry now for roughly 30 years. I don't even really know when you would start, but at least um, vocational ministry for, uh, for roughly 30 years now. That's hard to believe. You know, I mean, just to do the math, is this right? That'd be, if, if there's one sermon per week for 30 years, I mean, that's 1,500 sermons. Is that right? Yeah, 50, yeah, 1,500. Yeah. So, uh, is that right? Is that right? That's a lot. Anyway, it's a lot. It's a long time. Um, and so, in saying all that, um, it is ironic, I think, for me to also acknowledge that the entire journey, I have felt a certain tension. Um, and it can be described by, uh, on the one hand, I personally have been gripped by the love of God and I have this desire accordingly for others to experience something similar. Like that's, you know. Um, but on the other hand, and here comes the tension, simultaneously all the while, I have felt and this could be a list. I felt completely inadequate, ill-prepared, unqualified, under-resourced, incapable um, to do so, to serve as an emissary of God. I mean, that's really a wild thing to say, you know. So simultaneously, a, a, a human being, I, me, I've been gripped by the love of God, have a desire to see others experience something similar and at the same time feeling completely unqualified, ill-equipped, under-resourced, etc., um, to do so. I have felt that tension for all of my adult life. Um, and here's what I suspect, really what I know, is that I'm not alone in that basic, either side of that. that I'm not alone in that basic desire, that basic compulsion. There are many who identify with, with that idea that, yes, I too uh, have been gripped and, and being transformed by the love of God would desire to see others experience something similar. And simultaneously, I'm not alone in feeling ill-equipped, under-resourced, you know, unqualified, et cetera, uh, to do that. In fact, I, I'd bet that every single person who has been gripped by the love of God uh, would, would on some level at least um, identify um, with that tension, just like it is for me. Um, we don't know 
how to, how to go about it. We feel insufficient, unqualified, unsure about how it all might work. And so for many of us, we end up kind of shelving that desire and satisfying ourselves with other means of faith practice. You know, like I'm just, I'm, I'm going to sincerely love God. I'm going to seek ongoing spiritual growth. Um, but I'm basically going to leave to others, you know, the, the, um, the activity of sort of, you know, um, expanding this program, you know. <laughs> um, so I said all that to say that today we're going to look at this story in the life of Jesus um, that I think helps to answer this question. I think this story helps to answer this, this tension. It helps us, I think, hope, hopefully, I think, it helps us to overcome this obstacle. In fact, I would say that the principles that we're talking about today, um, in the end, uh, have served as the principles for me that have helped me to not, not end up paralyzed by that tension, right? Like, so what I'm saying to you is, I've felt this tension for 30 some years, 30 plus years. And yet, um, I have found a way not to be paralyzed by it and to move forward anyway. And I, I, I want to say that in the final analysis, um, the, the mustard to become unstuck, and I think for lo- in large part to stay unstuck, um, comes from the principles that emerge from this story. And so we're going to look at a story that will be familiar um, as soon as we start to read it, it's known as the feeding of the 5,000, one of the most remembered stories in the life of Jesus. And so here it goes in its entirety, and then we'll see what uh, we can make of it. Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 34. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Uh, When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now very late. Send them away so they can go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Are we to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Just for context, roughly 200 days wages, you do the math. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they came back and said to him, five loaves and two fish. We're a little short here. Then he ordered them. To get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves. And gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. Those who had eaten the loaves numbered 5,000 men. Just like Thanksgiving, a whole bunch of people were fed. And when it was all over, we still had tons of food left over, right? Uh, so as we sort of begin to take steps to move into this story, Let me just give an overarching umbrella that relates to the question that we raised at the very beginning. I want you to notice at the very beginning of this story, the words, he had compassion for them. Jesus' primary and fundamental overriding and undergirding motivation, the energy driving 
Jesus, we could say this broadly speaking, but especially in this story, is compassion. That is the atmosphere, the tone setter for everything else that happens here in this story. And so I want to say right at the outset, anything that we might do today, even in the sincere attempt to imitate Jesus or express our Christian faith, however you might say it, if it does not have compassion at the center of it, then it is not in the spirit of Christ. No matter how many Bible verses are quoted, no matter how many high-profile religious leaders are on board with it, if it does not have sacrificial compassion for the other at the center and circumference, then it is not an expression of the Spirit of Christ. It's unfortunate that somebody like me has to say something like that. It seems so basic. But whatever it is, both then and there or here and now, if it is purported to be done in the imitation of Christ or as an expression of our Christian faith and it doesn't have compassion, at the center and circumference. It is, in fact, not in the spirit of Christ. The beginning of both this moment and, again, arguably of, of all moments in the life of Jesus is compassion, compelled by compassion. So that's just, you know, I guess you could say that's not just the beginning. That's also the end <laughs> of this whole report. But, um, but just in terms of our metabolizing of this event I think it's important for us to start there uh, but let me just say a couple things kind of like you know some notes on this um, report first of all the miracle aspect and this is this is a report of something that we might call miraculous um, it says here that 5,000 men were fed by you know five loaves and to fish, it's safe to assume, and many uh, observers have pointed this out, it's safe to assume that there were also women and children present as well, but only the men were counted as a stat, you know, passed on to us. Uh, and so the total number of people fed in this moment would have far exceeded 5,000. Um, that many people ate from five loaves and two fish. So, you know, we don't care how big the loaves were and how big the fish were, it's a it's a miraculous, you know, thing that occurred here. We could certainly um, say that. Which immediately, and I just want to be honest about this, um, which immediately raises a question about the reliability of this story. I mean, I mean, just to be honest, you know, some people look at this story and others similar and simply discount it as impossible. And therefore, it has to be some sort of embellishment by the writer, or in this case, Mark, but um, you know, some, some sort of embellishment. But, but I just want to say in response to that kind of thinking, there are several factors actually that contribute to the authenticity of this report. Um, and one is that the same story is told by multiple gospel writers, all with different details included and certain details um, excluded. And, and, and um, historians and, and scholars agree that this story, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 as it's known, um, was circulated during the lifetime of, you know, the 5,000 people who are reported to have been there. In other words, those people could have easily refuted this account uh, because this story was circulated during what would have been their lifetime. And so those folks could have, you know, disputed that it ever occurred and therefore undercut the entire report for that matter and saying that no such thing ever happened. So, so there is that, there is that to, be, to be said for its reliability. But I just want to say, even more important than, than its reliability, um, although I, I side with those who say that, that this, this is a reliable account, um, more important than that, though, still, is the meaning of this story. Like, what, what does this mean? You know, like, we have this story, you know, it, it was it was told and repeated by the early followers of Jesus and then eventually written down by those that we recognize as the gospel writers. Um, but what does it mean? 
You know, these stories, as you know, these stories, they don't come to us with a divinely given commentary. <laughs> so, which means we get to sort of enter into these stories and search out their meaning. And so, what, what does this story mean, right? Like, for example, does, does this story mean that Jesus came to end world hunger personally, he himself? Well, obviously not. No, no more than his miracles of healing mean that he came to end disease in this world in and of himself. Interestingly enough, Mark makes this much clear um, that this is not what's going on uh, because he includes the detail that they picked up the leftovers. You don't pick up the leftovers if world hunger has been ended by the power of some magic man, you know, who's shown up. No, no, they picked up the leftovers. So, you know, this is not the mean. Does does this does this story mean to us that Jesus is the greatest, you know, magician ever, and this display of power means that his you know power goes beyond any anything before or any kind of challenge? Um, Clearly not. We, we understand from the whole of the gospel writer's report that Jesus' miracles are not a magic show, the flaunting of divine power. They're not that emphatically so. So what does it mean? What does this story mean? And to begin to put together positively an answer to that question, I just want to say I love what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says about the book of Genesis in particular. He would say this about the Old Testament as a whole, I suspect, as well. But he says that the book of Genesis contains truth in narrative form. Um, and this is, this is important because it, this is in contrast to the form in which we, modern Westerners at least, uh, expect truth to be presented. We typically expect truth to be presented in some sort of flat-out, cold statement, right? Like the laws of physics, you know, Newtonian physics, or the laws of thermodynamics, you know, a body in motion tends to stay in motion. Yeah. We expect truth to be stated kind of in, in that way, like a flat-out truth claim, here it is. Um, but what if there's a better way for we humans to grasp truth? What if, what if a story is actually a better way of making truth sticky for us. Um, and this is all brought, up, brought out by reflecting on the book of Genesis for Rabbi Sachs. And I suspect that the early Christians, deeply influenced as they were by their Jewish heritage, I suspect that they also felt the same way. And so they gave us some of the most profound truths revealed by Christ, revealed by God through Christ, if I can even say that, in the form of narrative. Stories about Jesus that are actually intended to embed truths deep into our hearts and minds. That's the framework that I'm coming from as we search out the meaning of this story. And so, what does it mean? <laughs> What are, what is, or what are those truths? Okay, so to begin to construct positively a meaning, first of all, a general statement. Um, initially, then, we could say that at its core, this story means what all of the other stories of Jesus' so-called miracles mean at their core. And that would be something like the kingdom of God is breaking in through Christ, and here's another Authentic but incomplete snapshot of what it looks like when God's rule is fully known and experienced. In, in, in the world in which God is fully in charge, here's a snapshot of what it looks like. In this case, the hungry are satisfied. Those who are empty are filled. The dependent find that all, they find all that they need in their heavenly father, right? Those would be some extrapolations from this particular miracle as it relates to, or this particular moment as it relates to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. That much we can say, generally speaking. And this particular moment, though, is compelling in a number of ways, but there's one characteristic of this story that I think makes it especially um, 
impactful. And I don't want to use the word informative. Makes it especially, um, well, ah, transformative. I think when we grasp this one particular aspect of this particular account, and that is that this miracle of Jesus, and I'm okay if you want to use that language, this miracle of Jesus is participatory. That is, it includes the participation of others in pulling it off. Specifically, the disciples themselves, in this case, and whoever it was that gave up the loaves and fish. When John tells the story, he says it was a little boy. That's pretty awesome. Um, But no name is given. So here's the summary of everything else that I'm going to say this morning. The key turning point in this unforgettable story is the moment when Jesus invites his apprentices to participate. That's the key moment. I'll say it even more emphatically than that. The reason we have this story to tell is because A, Jesus invited his people to participate, and B, they said yes. The reason we have this story to tell is because Jesus invited his followers to participate, and they said yes. So, in the spirit of the participatory nature of this moment, I thought we'd take a second and just try, like, as a thought experiment, try to personalize this story. In fact, I want to ask you to try to imagine the disciples of Jesus and imagine if you were one of them. Not the inner 12, let's not be that lofty, but imagine if you were one of the, you know, several dozens of others who followed Jesus, met more, you know, at more of the fringes, perhaps. Um, You too have been blown away by Jesus. You too have been drawn in by him. You keep seeing how he cares for people. You keep seeing his compassion for people, including you, and it is deeply compelling to you. And so you start to think in your mind, you know, hey, I, I too, I, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to find a way to, to start showing that kind of compassion and caring toward people like Jesus is starting to kind of rub off on you right like it's like becoming contagious and so you come up with an idea that that you think would be good for these people a genuine expression of your concern for their best interest and it happens right at that moment on that green grassy hill where these 5,000 men plus women and children have gathered and Jesus has been teaching for a long time and and out of your growing and developing sense of sensitivity and compassion you know you just know that they're getting hungry and so out of your sense of compassion and and the contagiousness of Jesus compassion rubbing off on you you come up with this idea and you suggest hey we should we should probably adjourn this meeting so all these people can go home or at least to some nearby village and get something to eat right we need to be compassionate toward these people right we need to take a break and send them out so they can get something to eat and you suggest that to jesus and of course jesus loves the idea he loves it when people come up with with ideas uh, that benefit others in a spirit of compassion so jesus loves the idea and so he says to you hey great idea i bet you're right they are Indeed hungry. But how about this? Instead, how about you give them something to eat? And this is the essential bell ringing moment, right, of this participatory kingdom of God phenomenon. In any context, at any level, in any narrative, whether it's on that green grassy hill 2,000 years ago or right here in our world today. When, when our initial kind of unfocused idea of how to serve people gets turned around and sent right back to us as something that seems 
impossible. And so the first thing you do in that moment is you're standing there face to face with Jesus and he makes his proposal right back to you. You know, you do what all of, what all of us do. You push back. Hey, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. I don't have the resources. I don't have the, the wherewithal. I don't have the time. I don't have the whatever. You know, that list expands indefinitely. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. And then eventually you exhale and you end up saying the only thing that you can say. You say, all I have is this. Fill in, fill in the blank. And with that essential transaction with that you have now been swept up into the process of participation in God's redemptive activity in the world driven initially by compassion for people and now drawn into through participation together with Christ and now let's step back for a little bit and look at what's just happened this is always the process of genuine redemptive participation in the unfolding kingdom of God. The process goes something like this. Being close to Jesus has now turned into the thought of compassionate service toward the other. Jesus takes that thought from you and turns it inside out, upside down, however you want to say it, and brings it right back to you as something probably larger and certainly more costly. And he gives it back to you as a challenge slash invitation. <laughs> In fact, very often what we present to Jesus might be, hey, Jesus, why don't you do something for us? I have compassion on these people, and I want you to do this for them, right? I, have, I know that they're hungry, and in my compassion, I want you to send them away <laughs> so they can go get something to eat. Jesus gives it right back to you as some sort of turned inside out, expanded, challenge slash invitation type proposition. And so then you offer what you have, knowing that it is both not enough to get the job done and B, it's costly. It's going to cost you something. So Jesus then, continue with the process, Jesus takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it right back to you. And your job is now to spread it around, scatter it about for others. Something like that is always the pattern of redemptive participation in the unfolding kingdom of God. And it's what we see modeled in this story. We'll find out someday, but I'm, I'm putting my money on this is why they gave us this story. The reason the early Christians gave us this story is because it embeds in narrative form the participatory nature of the unfolding, redeeming, healing kingdom of God. It, 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 it forever galvanizes for us in narrative form this picture of Jesus inviting his followers into, yes, the challenge of the kingdom of God, the service of the kingdom of God, the compassion of the kingdom of God, inviting his people into that, taking whatever it is we have, the inadequate, the not enough, the whatever, taking that, receiving it from us graciously, blessing it, breaking it, multiplying it, handing it back to us to distribute to the needs of those around us. This is the paradigm, the pattern of the kingdom of God. And so once again, this is on your outline. Let's go through it once again really quickly. And then we have a great um, quote that I want to look at before we, close, before we conclude. The first is what we talked about, contagious compassion. This is how it works. Whenever anyone hangs around Jesus, you catch a glimpse of what he's doing. And eventually you just want to get in on it somehow, some way. So we stumble in with our ideas, well-formed or not, doesn't really matter. Um, usually not <clears throat> very well-formed. Usually well-intentioned, but usually not very well-formed. You see Jesus' compassion for meeting needs. You see his intensity level for delivering both the understanding of and the experience 
of the redemptive love of God. You see all that for long enough, and it starts to starts a sort of fire in you. And I, I, I want to do something. I want to be a part of that. And so this sort of inner dialogue begins to happen. What if, what if we could? I wonder if we could. How about, how about if we, Jesus, what if you would, right? So that's this, this beginning of contagion number two, the second step, this we might call, I'm calling it, expansion and invitation. So Jesus takes that initial idea and he expands it or he redirects it in some way and gives it back to you as an invitation to participate. Wow, that's a great idea. And I'll tell you what, how about you feed them, right? Or, hey, that's the, that's the right idea, but I've got a better idea. Let's do it this way, right? Your idea, you know, maybe, maybe your original idea wasn't, I don't know, this might be the American in me talking. Maybe the idea wasn't big enough. I don't know. That's a possibility. Maybe we're too addicted to that idea in America. If you feel that way, then strike that from the record. But somehow, somehow, some way, it becomes expanded, tweaked somehow in the heart and mind of God and then given back to us as an invitation to participate. I remember soon after, this was in the early years after I graduated from seminary, and I was in my first ministry position um, at a great church in South Texas. And during that time, I was invited by some of my friends back in Tulsa to be a part of a mission team to go to the Czech Republic. A bunch of, bunch of musicians were putting together a musical missions team to go to Czech Republic. And uh, they were inviting me to come with them. And I was very excited about the opportunity. And so I went to my pastor there in South Texas and, and asked him for permission to take the vacation days to, to make the trip. And I told him about the whole thing and how excited I was uh, that this group was putting this trip together and that they invited me to be a part of it. And I was excited. And I'll never forget my pastor's response. Whenever I presented that to him, he said, well, sure, I'm, I'm delighted for you to go and to be a part of the team. He said, but um, he said, let me tell you what I really want. What I really want is for you to be leading the team, not participating in somebody else's team. And he said, I don't say that to, to put anybody else down. He said, but, but you're called to, to lead. And I was struck by that. And I thought, you know, in some little sort of little way, this is, that's a similar transaction to like what Jesus said to these disciples on that green, grassy hill 2,000 years ago. Jesus, you send them away so they can be fed. Ah, how about you give them something to eat? Right? There's a truth there. What is that? It's, it's transform, expand, and invite. Or transform, expand, and challenge. I mean, something like, something like that. I think it sounds exactly like Jesus. You, you heal that relationship. You, you create that healthy marriage you create that healthy climate in your home you you nurture the healthy whole bright confident self-disciplined children you do it you bring godly wisdom and character into your workplace or your company the atmosphere at work you solve that problem in your community you turn up the redemptive temperature in your particular local church Right? That's, that kind of stuff is a part of this story. That's not the whole story, admittedly. But those, those statements fit the paradigm at a certain point in the flow. And so the, second, the, third, the third part of the process, we could call it protest <laughs> and present. Right? So the next thing we do is we protest. Come on. You know it's true. We all, we all do it. God, I can't do that. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the strength. I don't have the time. I don't have the wherewithal. I don't have the skill. I don't have the money. I don't have the energy. I don't have the whatever, right? I mean, let's face it, you know, the, the biggest one, I mean, this is probably not what most of us would say, but I, I suspect unstated, I don't have the courage. I don't have the boldness. I don't have the gumption. I want you to do it instead, you know, not me. And you keep protesting like that, and your heavenly Father remains unmoved. Jesus remains convinced and convicted of his way of going about this whole kingdom thing, and it is through participation. So protest after protest just bounces off, <laughs> and the invitation from Jesus still stands. And so finally you slow down, you take a deep breath, and you say, okay. 
well, if that's the way it's going to be, then all I have is this. And you present what you have. It's not enough. It's insufficient. It's lacking. But here it is. If it'll do any good, this is what I do have. And you know it's not enough to accomplish the vision, the goal, the prayer, the hope, the whatever. It's not even close. But you offer it anyway just with the thought that it maybe, maybe it'll do some good. Five loaves, five fish, it won't feed everybody, but maybe it'll feed somebody. And also, let me just point out in this progression, this is where the costs start to climb. The moment you start to give to God whatever it is that you do have, however inadequate it may be, in that moment, I mean, just to say the obvious, in that moment, you begin to do without on some level. The moment you give to God whatever it is that you do have, inadequate as it is, you begin to do without. The disciples gave away what perhaps they themselves might have snacked on, you know, for, for dinner. Same thing for us. When, when you begin to give away your energy toward this kingdom goal, desire, hope, dream, whatever, then you no longer have that energy to invest elsewhere. That's just flat out true. The moment you give away your time, you no longer have that time to do something else with. There is a cost. When you give away your money, you no longer have that money to spend on something else. When you give away your rights in compassionate service toward others, then you no longer have the freedom to exercise that right yourself. There's a conversation in our society about that right now, by the way. Whatever it might be, it's important for us to recognize there is a cost at this point in the pattern. There's a cost. But, 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 here's the thing that happens, and you know this because you've lived it, just as I have. That doesn't stop you from giving, nonetheless, because once you get caught up in the rush of Jesus' compassion and its transformational impact on people's lives. There's a drawing there. There's a magnetism there that far exceeds the, whatever you want to call it, the downside of the sacrifice. Just the thought that maybe, just maybe, I give this to God and he might use it to have some sort of positive impact on somebody else's life, I can't resist that opportunity. There's a, compel there's, a, there's a compellingness there that far exceeds the downside of the cost. And then here's the last one. Blessing, breaking, and scattering. So I just want to say this part is mysterious. It is unexplainable. But you've seen it happen in your own life. I've seen it happen in my life. Jesus takes the little, the inadequate little that we have to offer him. He takes it. He blesses it. He breaks it. And he gives it back to us to then scatter. Imagine, imagine yourself standing there while Jesus is surrounded by thousands of people. <laughs> who each need exactly what you have, and they need far more of it than what you, you know, could possibly have. And Jesus takes this pitiful little amount from you, and he prays over it, and he thanks God for it. Right? Jesus, what I'm giving you is completely, completely inadequate, and he receives it with a smile and a prayer of gratitude to God. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this energy. Thank you for this creativity given to me by Joe here. I know you're delighted by this, God. And he blesses it. And he breaks it. And he gives it back. And now, it's enough. It's the pattern. Without even knowing 
We don't understand how it happened. We may not even know what happened exactly. But this is how it always happens. Jesus takes what we have, loaves and fishes, time, money, artistic ability, our rights, our sense of humor, musical skill, communication skills, leadership ability, empathy, compassion toward others, generosity, love for children, courage, whatever it is, inadequate though it is, incomplete though it is, he takes it and he holds it before the Father and he thanks the Father for it and he pronounces a blessing over it and then he breaks it, making it fit for kingdom use and then he gives it back to you for distribution to others. But at this point now, something's different. It is not the same. Whatever it was that I offered to God, it's not the same. It, it's, still what I, it's, it's still what it is that I offered to God, but yet it's different somehow. It's, it's still mine, but now it's also His. It's still my time, but it's also God's time. It's still my idea, but now it's God's idea. Now it's, it's what I offered him initially, but it's also what he gave me. And so what's being given to others, is it mine or is it God's? Am I giving, am I giving to the service of others something that's mine or is it something that's God's? I can't really tell. I don't really know. And honestly, I don't really care at this point. I don't really care. But what is undeniably clear is the results, the impact on the lives of other people. And when those, when impact is apparent, what's clear is that that belongs to God, <laughs> not, not to me. It is always a part of redemptive participation in whatever context that you look in amazement, astonishment at what God has done with the insufficient little that you have scraped together. And see, this is where I think, this is where I think someday when we are given the cliff notes to this story, I think when we're given the cliff notes, what the earlier Christians are going to tell us is that if you look at this story, if you look at this story, and I'm going to try to, I don't know if this will come out right, but if you look at this story and say, oh, look, Jesus did a miracle, then you're never going to get it. But if you look at this story and try to step in like two layers deeper and say, look what happened through the inadequate participation of these ill-equipped and unqualified followers of Jesus. And when they gave what they had to Christ and Christ blessed it and broke it and gave it back to them, look at the massive amount of positive impact that happened. I think they're going to say that was the point all along. Not to measure how many people Jesus can feed like he's some sort of um, genie. That's not, that was never the point. The point was this is, a, this is an enduring story that invites us not only to participate but to see the participatory element of the redemptive activity of the kingdom of God. It's always the pattern for how the beautiful kingdom of God breaks into the lives of people. It's always the pattern. It is about participation. And so just to complete the title then, I said earlier the title of this sermon was Jesus is participation. Uh, Jesus is invitation. Uh, the, it begs the question, invitation to what? And the answer is Jesus is God's great invitation to us to participate in what God is doing in the world. Uh, I want to conclude this morning by um, talking a little bit about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That's a name that may be familiar to some of you. Um, Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, theologian, activist, ultimately. Um, Bonhoeffer lived during the rise of Hitler in Germany, and he saw the danger of, of Hitler. And Bonhoeffer, ultimately, he supported the German resistance against Hitler, while many, 
safely, we can say, while most German Christians, um, at a minimum, didn't see the danger, and probably it's more true to say most German Christians supported Hitler. He played upon their national hopes and dreams. World War I uh, had been devastating for them culturally, and Hitler came, and we're going to make, you know, he's going to make Germany great again, and most German Christians got right behind Hitler uh, and his Nazi program to elevate Germany again on the world stage. <coughs> Eventually, Bonhoeffer was arrested by the Gestapo, and he was held in prison reportedly for roughly a year and a half, and then he was executed uh, at the gallows of Hitler's Third Reich. Uh, during the period of his imprisonment, well, Bonhoeffer wrote a lot during his uh, brief lifetime, um, but many consider what he wrote while he was in prison, that roughly 18 months time span. Um, they were later compiled and they they're, have been published now. You can buy it as a book, Letters and Papers from Prison, it's called. And many consider this set of writings from Bonhoeffer to be the clearest and most concentrated view into his heart and mind. And I want to read to you a, a quote at length that bears on our discussion today. He says, God consents to be pushed out of the world and onto the cross. God is weak and powerless in the world. And in precisely this way, and only so, is at our side and helps us. The Bible makes it quite clear that Christ helps us not by the virtue of his omnipotence, but rather by virtue of his weakness and suffering. This is the crucial distinction between Christianity and all religions. Human religiosity directs people in need to the power of God in the world. God as deus ex machina. Talk about that in a minute. The Bible directs people toward the powerlessness and the suffering of God. Only the suffering God can help. The world's coming of age, and that's kind of his reference to the historical moment that he's living in, the unchecked rise of Hitler and the disruption of people in his wake. The world's coming of age, which has cleared the way by eliminating a false notion of God, frees us to see the God of the Bible who gains ground and power in the world by being powerless. Wow. The human being is called upon to share in God's suffering at the hands of a godless world. It's not a religious act that makes someone a Christian, but rather sharing God's suffering in the worldly life. That is metanoia. The Greek word typically translated repentance. That is metanoia. Not thinking first of one's own needs, questions, sins, <coughs> and fears. But allowing oneself to be pulled into the walking path that Jesus walks. Into the messianic event. That would be a phrase that a number of theologians would grasp upon. The messianic event. Now... I bring this quote into our discussion at this point because Bonhoeffer here is describing a vision of the kingdom of God as participation. The ongoing work of God in the world is a clarion call for participation. And Bonhoeffer makes it clear that the tone and tenor and mode of participation with Christ is ultimately, as he says, suffering and weakness. But more specifically, I bring this quote into our discussion because of the contrast that Bonhoeffer draws out between the suffering God versus what he describes as deus ex machina. This is a, a Latin phrase, but it's used to describe a device frequently used in Greek theater. And the pattern in Greek theater was something like this. The story unfolds on stage. The plot thickens until finally it appears that disaster is imminent and there's nothing that can be done. 
to avoid it. And just at that time, a physical crane would be used uh, to float down from above and onto the stage in this Greek play, one deity or another. The god would come from the machine, literally, is what would happen. And this god would be lowered onto the stage and into the action. And this deity uh, would, you know, vanquish the bad guys and, you know, rescue the good guys. The end. <laughs> That's the end of the Greek play. <laughs> Deus ex machina. So this phrase describes not only a theatrical device frequently used in Greek theater, but what Bonhoeffer is pointing out here with the use of this phrase is that on a broader level, this phrase also describes a particular perspective on religion. And that is what Bonhoeffer is critiquing. And actually contrasting with the revelation of God revealed in Christ. See, the common, we could say it this way, common human religious think is that God will intervene from outside. God is the God of the, God of, out of the machine. Deus ex machina. That's common religious think. But God as revealed in Christ stands in contrast to that. God as revealed in Christ is something entirely different. In fact, God is present, suffering with us all, suffering together with humanity. And God is inviting us to participate from within the world toward healing. This vision of God as emphatically, authentically demonstrated in Christ stands in stark contrast to the basic human idea of what religion even is in the first place. And that's what Bonhoeffer is saying. And I suspect the early Christians who repeated the story of the feeding of the 5,000 again and again and again, and the gospel writers who recorded the story for us, they would say to Bonhoeffer, at least in this regard, amen and amen. And the apostle Paul gets it too. Just briefly here from Romans 8, Paul says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. God suffering with the world from within the world and entering his people from within the world to participate in his healing, redeeming kingdom. And then Jesus is, the, is God's invitation us to participate. Let's pray.